Welcome to another episode of Corkout History, where we drink Portuguese wine and we talk about Portuguese history, mostly the wine. My name is Andre, and I'm Inês. And welcome to Corkout History. Welcome to the second half of this conversation. If you would like to hear the first half, come visit me over at Past, and it'll be there. Now on to the second half. So today we'll be talking about Philippa of Lancaster. Born in Leicester in 1360, Philippa would come to be the Queen of Portugal through her marriage with King John I, founding a new dynasty and one of the defining generations of Portugal's early modern history. But today we are also joined by Veronica from Past Pod. Hello. Hi, Veronica. Hi. <laughs> and just as Veronica mentioned before, if you want to find out how we got here, because this is actually the second episode in the part of two. So if you want to find out about Philippa's life earlier on, you will have to go on to the past podcast and we really recommend it. It's one of the ones that we follow every week. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And since today we're establishing the connection between UK and Australia, it means it's 9am here in London, so today we won't be drinking any wine for once. It's way too early, guys. <laughs> Even for us. It's 8pm here now? No, sorry. 7pm <laughs> when we started, and I would fall asleep if I had a drink, so I'm not drinking either. There we go. No one is drinking today. We'll just be going through the life of this spectacular woman. Yeah. So here we're going to be diving into the alliance between John of Portugal, who is John I of Portugal, and John of Gaunt. So as we mentioned before, there's a lot of Johns in this story. And this alliance was only natural. They had a common enemy, and I mean, there's hardly a more solid reason to make a withstanding alliance. The Treaty of Windsor was signed in 1386, allying England and Portugal. There was actually a treaty that had already been established before with the previous king, but the Treaty of Windsor comes into play now. Now, the Treaty of Windsor is kind of a big deal. It is considered to be the oldest alliance in history, which is still enforcing politics today. Portugal and England, which would later be updated to be the United Kingdom, have never fought against each other and they haven't been in opposite sides of a war with Portugal being an independent kingdom because the only exception to the time that they fought in opposite sides is when Portugal lost its independence for 60 years. It's tragically true to the Spanish king at the time. Yeah. And so we actually had to take part in the Spanish Armada fiasco. Oh, ouch. So, yeah, yeah. So we were with the Spanish at the time. Portugal wasn't independent. And actually, the Spanish Armada departed from Lisbon. Oh, yes. In Portugal. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that's the only time since this Treaty of Windsor in 1386, the only time that they were in opposite sides of the war. I find this treaty interesting that it's gone on for so long because treaties always had to be re-signed when there was a new regnant, a new king or queen. Yeah. And it just continued for so long, which I think is, is a real lovely thing, actually. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think we have it quite present in our Portuguese mind. I'm not sure if the English are so aware of it as we yeah, are. Yeah, definitely not. I'm sure you, you helped box in Spain. Box yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we, as the smaller country, are a little bit more aware of it. <laughs> Throughout history, this alliance has served both parties, even though they're not really aware of it. <laughs> and it's not only relative to war. So war is part of it. So for instance, the UK became much more involved in the Peninsula War and in the Napoleonic Wars, thanks to this treaty. So they were on the side of Portugal and there was one of the reasons or one of the excuses that they got so heavily involved in the in both the Napoleonic Wars and the Peninsula War. But also on the other side, there's an Anglo-American military base in Portugal, which has been a big deal. And not only war, but also commercially. It, yeah. Commercially, yeah. I think it's been better for Portugal than actually in any other aspect. And still, I'd say this with some doubts because it meant that the competition was not as open as it could have been. So the prices were always tapped for England in a way that they were not for other countries. So really, this has worked for England more than anything else. Like, it, yeah, it hasn't worked for trade. Portugal as greatly as it has for England. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that's hard to say, really, because if you look, I don't know, maybe especially at the north of Portugal, you know, in terms of fabrics mm -hmm. production, in terms of wine, yeah. that all shaped our country and the country we still have today. And a lot of it came from the market we did with England, True. the trades that we had in England. True, but And obviously, there's all that you are saying. So there could have been more potential if we hadn't been just dealing with England, but I mean, I don't know, it did shape us to, to be what we are today. Yeah, but just not to sugarcoat it, let's not forget that this treaty didn't stop England from making an ultimatum to Portugal in the 19th century, yeah. so that's that's yeah. a whole other what? story. What? <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Also, England needs very little excuse to be colonialist. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. We called it the pink ultimatum yes. because in the maps it was done in pink and you're right, it had to do with the colonial Africa. Yeah. And yeah, oh, we, yeah, were, no, we still is. hold resentment <laughs> over yeah. that. And separation of territories in Africa and... It was and not yeah, nice um, in... Anyway, no. No, no, no. And this was all leading to World War One, and yeah, but I mean, it is what it is. It'll start it here wow. to this day. I'm not sure to what extent and how impactful it is, but yes, traditionally it's the oldest alliance still standing, yeah. In force today. Wow. Yeah, still standing. And it all started here. <laughs> and to cement this alliance we had to have a wedding. Yay! So this marriage between Philippa and John was convenient for both parties, as we said, and King John I of Portugal, he did not come to the crown by natural order or by peaceful means. No, not at all. So let's just look at that really quickly. He was an illegitimate son of King Peter I of Portugal. His legitimate half-brother, Fernando, became king in his own time, but he would die early at the age of 38 without a male heir. He had a daughter, 
Beatrice, who was married to King John of Castile, that King John, yes, that the one, one that we, the one of yes. the other Johns, the John of Gaunt and yeah, John of that Portugal. That we mentioned in the previous episode. I just realized we didn't quite mention him in this episode. It was in the previous episode. Go on listen. The passport. Yeah, go, go listen. There. Yeah, thanks. Now, if they would accept Beatrice as the heir in practical terms, this would mean that Portugal would lose its independence to Castile. So. Despite being illegitimate, John of Portugal, who was master of the Order of Aviche, so he was in a monastic order, he would seize this chance to grab the Portuguese throne. And it's a whole story that we will leave for another episode. But all that matters right now for this one is that he seized the throne and it started a succession crisis war, which lasted two years between Portugal and Castile. Um, English help was a very valuable commodity for securing this new throne and in battles such as the Battle of Aljubarrota. And yes, that's also for another episode. I am so glad you yeah, said that's that for another... and not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not an uh, yeah. easy one. Aljubarrota. Yeah, Alju Barrota is one of our biggest battles. And I know that we were saying maybe England has profited more from this Windsor Treaty than Portugal has. But I mean, they did lend a helping hand in Alju Barrota. And if we had lost that battle, instead of, spoilers, winning it, <laughs> things would have been completely different because we could be Spanish right now. And I, I prefer the way things went. <laughs> it would be very different, uh, it? It would. It would be very different. So, I mean, you, I don't know. You'd have a king. We can't tell how... <laughs> it, oh, yes, yes, that for one. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We, we would have a king. Good choice not and, having um... <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know. But at least that, they did help in Aljubarrota, so... That's, that's something that we got from the Treaty of Windsor. Now, Andre just mentioned a little bit of something that we hinted, well, hinted, heavily hinted in the last episode. And we promised we would explain why this King John had made chastity vows, which didn't allow him to get married. I mean, this seems very counterintuitive for someone who's going to be king, right? I mean, you do have to, to get married and have children. That's how monarchy works, apparently. It's your one job. Like, keep your country <laughs> yeah, safe exactly. in battle and have some babies. Ideally. And we've finally come to that. So the reason that he had made chastity vows is because, well, John I was not meant to be king from the start. He was an illegitimate son of the previous king. And... As, you know, often happens with illegitimate sons or with second sons, he had joined a religious order. So he was actually, as Andre mentioned, he was the master of the order of Avish. And of course, as an illegitimate son of the king, he was not just one member of the order. He was the most yeah. important member was, of oh, yeah. that order. Yeah, <laughs> The yeah. big one. Yeah. Some illegitimate sons win. That's how they yeah. win. Yeah. You just yeah. Exactly. give Correct. them offices yeah. that they can help yeah. influence politics and, and whatnot, <laughs> yeah. church, church politics even. Yeah. So he was a big one in the um, order of Avish and obviously being a religious order that came with a chastity bow. He was not meant to have a family. So when things change and suddenly he's like, oh, we don't want to be Spanish, I'll take this throne. 
we have a little bit of a conundrum here because, well, vows had been made and yet now he needed children. And so, yes, he needs to appeal to get a Pope dispensation. And it did take a while. I guess everything did take a little while in the (laughs) 14th century. Apparently, this took a little bit longer. I read that the Pope was, well, this is the Pope that was in Rome. At the time, we had two Popes, right? We had one Pope in Avignon and we had a Pope in Rome. And the Pope in Rome was let's say, more aligned with the English side of things, whereas the Pope of Avignon was more aligned with the French side of things. And so the Pope in Rome, he didn't want to go against England per se, and he hadn't quite fully understood this because he knew that John of Gaunt was trying to get the throne of Castile, and he knew that accepting John I as king, he might have a claim to the throne of Castile as well. So he was like, oh, let's delay that slightly. I don't know if that's going to go against John of Gaunt. And then he had to be informed that it's like, no, John of Gaunt actually really needs this dispensation. Please, he wants to marry his daughter to this king. Everything is getting delayed. And then it's like, oh, why didn't you say so? Here it is. Go ahead. So that was the the reason for the delay. But it did arrive in time. And the the wedding could go forth. Sorry, I was going to say the Pope actually had issued a papal bull to support John of Gaunt's claims to the Castilian throne. And that was part of what caused him to even take the chance to go there. Yeah, exactly. It's how all of this happened. He's a big God supporter. Yeah, exactly. And he didn't want to step onto anyone's toes by giving this one. And then he realized, oh, no, they're on the same side. Oh, my bad. Here it is. Go ahead. (laughs) Get married by all means. And yeah, so the wedding could finally go forth and... At this time, everything had already been a little bit delayed and, you know, with war, there's timings and the war had now to move swiftly. And in order to get the war moving, they wanted to get the wedding out of the way. There had been, when they agreed on the wedding, they had done a wedding by proxy according, like we mentioned in the previous episode, There are no Portuguese sources to this wedding by proxy. There's only English sources to this wedding by proxy, but it seems that a wedding by proxy might have happened when they were first, you know, initializing the contracts. To find more about that wedding by proxy, go on to (laughs) the previous episode and listen to the previous episode on Passport. But now it's time for the, let's say, real wedding. So this wedding had been delayed and things were definitely a little bit rushed. So a medieval wedding is slightly different to, well, it's very different to weddings today. (laughs) Truer thing has never been said. A wedding would actually be comprised of three parts. So the first step is to have the wedding blessed and that happened on the 2nd of February. And then you have the, let's say the big party and that happened on the 14th. And then you'll have the consummation of the wedding with the bedding, right? It's all in different stages. So we can say actually the wedding started on the 2nd and would finish on the 14th. On the 2nd, there's only the blessing ceremony and that didn't have many people at all. The king had been traveling the country. He didn't seem to be overly concerned with having to have a wedding until someone was like, 
well, Lent period is about to start and you can't have a wedding then. So Lent period is actually quite long, which would delay things incredibly. So suddenly the king is like, oh, all right, okay, let's, you know, rush up there. Let's get this started. And he sends, let's say, the invitations and medieval world is not like today. So people were sent invitations and suddenly the wedding was in 12 days. So a lot of people couldn't make it. Uh, seems like he wasn't a great planner. <laughs> I feel like it's a Monty Python sketch, actually. Like, get into the swing. We've got the blessing, and then we've got the... We had the proxy, proxy as well, the bedding, and then this. And, yeah, no. Get your act together, yeah, guys. <laughs> a lot of the country couldn't make it to Porto. Porto is a city in the north of the country, and it's the second largest city in Portugal after the capital. So a lot of people couldn't make it there. But from what we can see, didn't really take away from the festivities on the 14th. So Porto is already a big city. Everyone who could attend was there. And you have everything that you have in a medieval wedding. So you have the tournaments, jousting, parties, you had banquets, decorated streets, you name it. There was everything. And the festivities through Portugal in the little towns and cities would last for 15 days after that. Everyone you know, parting and drinking on behalf of this new English lady coming to Portugal. I am down for that party. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, we all are. I think sounds that's, great, that's, isn't that's, it? <laughs> usually we don't want to be part of what happens in this podcast because it's either war or black yeah, fan no. or yeah, something. But this yeah. this part we, we would, yeah. Awesome. So Philippa and King John spent the first periods of their marriage apart because there was a war going on and there was a lot to deal with. However, Philippa's father, John of Gaunt, would eventually give up on his ambitions to hold the throne of Castile himself and decided instead that a diplomatic solution of engaging his daughter Catherine to the heir of the throne might work better and save some lives. Thank goodness Which means his daughter is with him. Yeah, yeah exactly. good asset too. Yeah. That was good planning yeah, for exactly. once. It's like, oh, let's just... They're... They'll come in handy, probably. They're worth a lot, yeah, but... apparently, on the marriage market. So. <laughs> <laughs> and this means that uh, three of his children actually became kings, and so his son, Henry, would be the fourth of his name and hold the crown of England. Catherine, Philippa's half-sister, would get the crown of Castile, and Philippe actually gets the crown of Portugal. So yeah. yeah, yeah, he did quite well for yeah. himself, didn't That's he? That's quite the yeah. I want to say you four know, of his grandchildren were actually kings or queens as well. Right. Okay. So it carries okay. on. Yeah. Mm. Oh no, it, it gets even more scary. Don't look at that family tree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, clearly he gave up on his ambitions for himself and completely focused them on his children. And Philippa actually kept close relationships with her family. Her father and Constance yeah. came to visit her a few times before returning to England. And after that, they kept on corresponding. It's nice, isn't it, to see things that we can find a little bit relatable to our own lives and to see a queen in the 13th century. We might be tempted to think of them as something other than almost human or a person just like we are. I find it very relatable to see the kind of relationships that they kept with their family. 
and reading letters from this kind of correspondence, I haven't read any by Philippa, but this kind of royal correspondence, it always gives you that sense of normality and like yeah, relatable. Yeah. A little um, bit heartwarming. Yeah, yeah. So I found, it's not the cutest thing, obviously, but it's it's quite cute. John of God actually left her a few things in his will. So I have two of his biographies, which both have his will in it. And uh, she was left specifically his second best gold drinking horn and a goblet covered with gold. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. So there we go. Who was left his first I, uh, I best, didn't uh, actually read the gold. whole will. I was like, let's find out when. Oh my god. Oh, cool. So I, I just think it's sweet that even though he knew she'd be well cared for because her husband was a king and wealthy and she'd had children by him at this point, so she was very secure, yeah. he still felt the need secure, to yeah. leave her just something small as a memory of him. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's yeah. really lovely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's one of those things that just make us look at these as people mm-hmm. who might have lived all that time ago and have really different experiences to our own, no doubt, but still some of the experiences are relatable. Exactly. So in her new kingdom, <laughs> Philippa dedicated herself to fitting in. She was really big in supporting the king in person whenever possible. She made a true effort to learn the language and the culture, but we can say that she did not try to fit in to the detriment of herself. So she did really try to become a part of this new court and she also brought a lot of herself into the new court. So she introduced a lot of new anglicized traditions and ways of doing things. I'm probably going to think these things sound like completely normal traditions when you tell me what they are. So I'm really looking forward to this, actually, because I'm like, that's totally how English-speaking people do it, and it will be something that is completely new in Portugal at that time. We are going to look a little bit into her legacy to the Portuguese court in just a little bit. Despite her late marriage, so remember (laughs) that Filippa was 27, God forbid, by the time that... Finally, this wedding had gone through. Philippa would prove to be extremely successful in her royal reproduction duties. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, she had a lot of babies. (laughs) And I mean, what babies? She had amazing children. Her children will be known as the illustrious generation in Portugal, we call it a inclita geração, so the illustrious generation, and they all distinguish themselves in some way. Also, I mean, there's also propaganda and privilege, let's not forget that, but that's part of it, right? Maybe some of them were not that amazing, but they were, because they were part (laughs) of the illustrious generation, so they had everything going for them. However... Still, they could just lay in the sun and do nothing. (laughs) <laughs> but they oh, did I something that job. I, they, exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's probably what I would go for yeah. but they did do something else with their yeah. lives so you know props to them that's a good way to look at it so she was very successful in this role however it is worth noting that this prol started with a miscarriage and after she went on to have eight children. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of I'll be honest, I'll share this with your listeners. I have three children and that's <laughs> a lot of kids. Eight is just yeah. an unimaginable number of children in my mind. <laughs> 
it's really quite daunting. And she got married at 27, so all her children came after <laughs> that. First, she had a miscarriage, and then her last child she would have at the age of 42, which, I mean, today is still considered to be a risk pregnancy. So oh, yes. Imagine in the 14th century. In the 14th century, all of them were risk pregnancies, but <laughs> at 42. <laughs> There's quite a little bit more into that one. Yeah, so she had first a girl called Branca after Philippa's mother Blanche. That's basically the Portuguese oh, for yeah. Blanche, I guess. Yes, um, yes. So, but th this baby would not survive her first year. And the next one was a boy, which was very welcome. There was now an heir to the throne. And they named him Afonso, a kingly name in Portugal. We have many kings that go by Afonso. Um, yeah, we do. I'm surprised he wasn't came... named John, just to make it more difficult yeah. for us. <laughs> we'll get there. Good for us, good for us. There's eight children. Yeah. <laughs> Safe. Yeah. <laughs> then we had Duarte, named after the Edwards in Philippa's family. So there's always a connection here. Edward III and Edward the Black Prince. And then came Pedro, named after King Peter I, John's father. And lastly, Enrique. Uh, this time after Henry, Philippe's brother and great-grandfather. <laughs> after all of these boys, then came a girl called Isabel, inspired by both sides <laughs> of the family, as there was Isabel or Elizabeth on both sides. So, yeah, an homage to everyone. Oh, there's another one? Oh, shit. <laughs> there's eight of oh them, Andre. <laughs> yes, there's another one. Oh, so I, I thought I had said eight, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, we finally get to John, João. Yay! Uh, yeah. We had to get there. So now, how do you say well. John in Portuguese? João. João. I'm not going to say that right. <laughs> no, it's, it's a it's, tough it's, one. It's a tough one. João. It's, yeah. João. João. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't possess that also. <laughs> no, yeah, I know. It's, it's very tricky for any English-speaking person to in my for defense anyone, really. i do speak languages that aren't english they just aren't the ones that you two speak so yeah <laughs> i'm not one yeah, of those monolingual yeah, yeah. americans right <laughs> <laughs> it's a tricky sound yes. i'm sure i'd get used produce, to it quickly if i sure. practiced it you could with all the ones that are around like there's enough <laughs> yeah. practice here <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's funny because even today still one of the most common names yeah, in yeah, portugal yeah, yeah, yeah. and oh, wow. there's always bound to be some english-speaking person trying to say the names and it's always butchered and it's always hilarious <laughs> for us but you can leave my butchering so... in if you want, just so that your listeners, your Portuguese listeners, can have a laugh. It's okay. <laughs> it's how we learn. Um, we mispronounce things to learn, it is, right? It is. No, yeah, yeah exactly, totally. exactly. And we mispronounce exactly. a lot of English. Words. I wouldn't have yeah, learned yeah, other yeah. languages if I had mispronounced things. So exactly. exactly, if we are afraid of mispronouncing, no, for sure. We did get there, and there's a João in her eight children as well. Had to be. So. Afonso, so who was the heir, he would pass away, sadly, when he was 10 years old. And so the responsibility of the crown passed to his brother, Duarte. And... Oh my god, there's still another child. <laughs> <laughs> Did we miss one? No, it comes after this. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh she had yeah. another one we... after... Yeah, oh, after this. Yeah, she okay. is a star. 
my gosh. Yeah, she is, yeah. <laughs> so after Afonso dies, Duarte gets the crown responsibilities and then Filipa has her last son who was named Fernando after his uncle. So that's King John's legitimate brother from whose daughter he usurped the throne. This last pregnancy was very difficult. It was the one she had when she was 42 and it seriously threatened Philippa's life. In such cases, when the life of the mother was in jeopardy, abortion would be considered. And it is said that the king himself offered her the abortive mixture, which Philippa refused in light of her religious beliefs. I mean, it is important to notice that uh, when the sources refer to this, there is a laudatory tone on these accounts, if not even moralizing. Yes. They do appreciate that she refused it for her religious beliefs and that she decided to go forth in despite of herself. But in any case, both mother and child would survive this grueling experience. Yay! <laughs> it Yay. is, but it's, it's true. Even today, like I'm older and had my twins at an older age and it's still complicated pregnancy still exists today. And it's a very difficult thing to think about while you're pregnant, like you want your little babies yeah. and so it's yeah, yeah I imagine yeah, it, it wouldn't be dissimilar I think people think the same way we do back then yeah so, yeah, yeah yeah scary but difficult yeah. in any case she did refuse and this time I'm happy to say it worked out yeah. so <laughs> yay I read that Filippo was really into reading for instance apparently her mom was really instrumental in her love for literature and she did pass that on to her sons. Also, I did read this interesting note that the first English book to be translated into Portuguese (laughs) or to be read in Portugal would be thanks to Filipa. Yeah, and also one of her sons, Duarte, the one that we mentioned that will be king, he is one of the kings that became also famous for writing. So he does write a lot of poetry and he writes a book called Leal Conselheiro, which would be translated to something like the loyal counselor, something yeah. like that. Something like uh, yeah. It's Advisor. a series of rules. It's yeah, yeah it's a series yeah. of rules on how to behave, basically. So he was he was really into poetry and philosophy. We have a lot of his poetry, yeah. which is yeah, oh, yeah, wow. I remember seeing about that. And this is not all that Philippa had an impact on in Portugal. Like we mentioned before, she started to change the customs at court and out of the many ways that she impacted them one of the most significant changes was developing and cementing the power and the influence of the house of the queen and we can see this in several different ways for instance the queen has lands that belong to her and from which her independence is assured this had already been the case this was already ongoing however uh, philippa steps into her responsibilities and takes it a lot further than any queen had ever done before so she is really hands-on properly administrating these lands other than that there is also i'm not sure if this is the word they use in English for this kind of thing, but there is the gynaceo of the queen, so... No. It's gynaceo, yeah. 
gynecium. Okay. Uh, so anyway, like gynecology. I will explain what okay. this is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I it's, suppose it's, it's, it comes the same from the same origin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has something to do with ladies. Lady, yeah. lady parts. I think it's also based in <laughs> botany, like something to do with flora. No, I think so. To know which one anyway. came first, if if from the flower to the <laughs> ladies or the ladies to the flowers i don't know what's the connection you would anyway. need to study the the greek and roman philosophers yes exactly they are, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. They are yeah. shockingly sure. sexist bunch so <laughs> i don't yeah. recommend it they are yeah there is this gynecium or whatever you call it this is basically a group of ladies around the queen this whole circle uh, revolves around the queen. She's the epicenter of this game of influence to the point where she's the one making and arranging the marriages of these noble ladies. Okay. Now, let's not forget that a marriage is an alliance, so there is an immense power in this role. It's a little bit different. It's, we can say, a feminine kind of power, but it's still a lot of power in this role as she is surrounded by all the noble ladies of the family she's educating them she's getting them ready for marriage and then she's actually arranging these marriages and relating to this it's also worth mentioning that until then things were a little bit different so it was customary for the king to decide on these marriages himself and he would just notify the bride and the groom the night before <gasps> so just the night before no. he would order them like get ready you are getting married tomorrow and he wouldn't even notify them whom to so no. yeah <laughs> so imagine getting that notice okay getting ready tomorrow and people would only find out who they actually were getting married to the next day and i mean that was that and philippa actually changed this a little bit obviously marriages would still be arranged but now the family of the bride and supposedly the bride herself they had to approve and consent to the marriage before so it wasn't just here go get married make babies this these houses are now allied like it would be a more you know we can say modern, more modern to our sensibilities it, way to do things. It does sound similar in England, how they'd have a betrothal process at first. So, and you hopefully at least get to know your spouse before you married them. Philippa's uncle, Lionel, actually lived with his spouse because they were betrothed when they were very young. And she, right. her father had died at one, when she was a baby. And so she was raised in his household with him even. So they got to know each other probably a little in an odd sibling way before they got married. <laughs> I think something in between well, those two extremes is the right answer. <laughs> exactly. Probably right on that one. But so she did bring something definitely good to this process. Yeah, and the, the scene internationally had also changed. So Portugal and Castile were now in peace. And so Portugal could think of other things and could turn its sights away from their neighbor and look elsewhere. And that would also be... It would also be a form of asserting Portuguese power to find somewhere else to turn their attention to. And that happened to Ceuta in Morocco. Portugal was going through some economic problems and Ceuta seemed to be the solution for all of it. Not only solving those problems, but also offering a very appealing notion of fighting against the infidels, so against the Moorish people that lived in Morocco. Um, 
there were riches to be taken while delivering that idea of religious crusades that fueled everyone. So it made this war not only justifiable, but also commendable in their minds. And it got the interests of nobility and the princes themselves. Yeah, I think, obviously, fighting Christians never stopped any war, right? Like, no. we have that and we're going to keep having that. And we are well familiar with that. However, once Portugal had peace with Castile, they didn't really have any more ongoing wars with the Christians. And suddenly there's all this, oh, yeah, now we we want to go there and we should actually go there. It's the next closest thing know, where that can happen. Like there's, you have the sea, you have Castile and the other uh, Spanish yeah. kingdoms. And then you just have the south where you've expelled the Moorish populations before. So let's go after them. And so the king wasn't too keen on this and he resisted the prince's enthusiasm. However, it appears that Philippa, the queen, persuaded him otherwise. She did not want the king to go. His fighting years were behind him, but she gave support to her boy's desire for battle. And she became a very big supporter of this venture and was paramount in convincing the king to attempt to take the city, although she couldn't stop himself from going. So plans didn't go exactly as she wanted. But, well, he was going, so apparently she was involved in the preparations. And it's also always highlighted how Philippa was very religious. So this was also part of her increased uh, intensity of fasting and praying that she took to ensure that they would have a safe journey and come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was part of the preparations, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting to see like religion was such a big part of their world. It's different to the importance religion has today. And obviously there's all the practical plans going on, but praying and fasting and that was actually considered to be part of the heavy planning as well. It was crucial to ensure that things would go as well as possible and she really threw herself into this and she was fasting loads and I mean okay that's great but it's probably not gonna make you any stronger it's a lot of vigils and fasting and praying so here we come again at this time the plague so the black death was rife all through Europe and such was the case in Portugal as well and it reached even that's the thing about plague it doesn't care it reached even the king's court so the king left ahead to go into isolation in the convent of Odivelas and yes listeners if you listen to our last episode that's the same one so in our last episode we see someone living in this convent later on this is the same convent only a few centuries before so he removed himself to the convent but the queen delayed her departure a little bit apparently having to do with the religious aspects of it and all the praying and vigils and stuff perhaps her body was weakened by the long periods of fasting and perhaps it would have happened either way who can know right all we know is that by the time that they moved her to the convent where her husband was, it was far too late. The queen had already contracted the plague. 
we are coming to the Seden. So before dying, the queen wanted to knight her sons. And the swords that had been ordered for them to take into the conquest of Ceuta were not finished yet. So again, everything is a little bit delayed, but death doesn't wait, right? So she decided to initiate them into the Order of Christ. This is a big religious order in Portugal and comes after the Knights of Templar. And she decided to initiate them into the Order of Christ with a wooden cross that was then broken in pieces for each of them to keep as a token. Then on the next day, she was finally able to give the swords because apparently they weren't that late and she wasn't <laughs> dead yet. The next day she actually had the swords blast and gave them the swords and speeches were made very much in line with all the chivalry notions. She reminded them to be loyal to each other and gave each of them uh, a little task for their oncoming lives. And maybe we downplayed it a bit when we just said that they were going to Ceuta, but this actually marks the beginning of what would be the Portuguese expansion overseas. And it's a world that's just about to change dramatically. So it's a big moment, despite all the considerations we might do when looking at that. But it is a big thing. And the queen did not leave to see them go on this venture. And she never got to know its successful outcome. Duarte, the heir to the throne, refused to leave his mother's side and stayed with her until she passed, actually. And years later, he would also be taken by the same Black Death. It really is the beginning of the Portuguese overseas expansion. And it's that moment that Portugal in the corner of Europe and suddenly the ones they had been fighting, what had been keeping their attention, was Castile and... Other than that, there wasn't much. We have sea on two borders. And so after that is sorted, you need to step out of the country. And that's going to shape the Portuguese history for, well, until today, but for the next centuries to come. And it's going to be not only the Portuguese history, actually, it's going to shape the world's history in the next centuries to come. So yes, this moment was a really, really big moment. And... Philippa seems to have been instrumental to convince the king to take that step. So I don't think we can downplay this in any way. And when we analyze the legacy of Philippa, we cannot ignore that her figure was molded to fit an idea in Portuguese history. She was depicted as the perfect Christian family-orientated queen who had an amazing batch of boys who inaugurated the golden age of the discoveries. And this vision of her started during her dynasty. So it starts there, which, you know, it's perfectly normal. It's the kings that are ruling the country, so that's to be expected. But this vision also would perpetuate until today, even. So we don't want to deny her, you know, righteous glory of being a mother. She was amazing at that and she excelled on that role by all accounts. However, we want to complete that portrait of her. So we want to go beyond that one-dimensional notion and recognize her as a multifaceted human being. I was going to say really quickly, I think it's interesting how 
women need to fit into this script, uh, even to this day, but more so in that time period. So she's celebrated for being this perfect mother and raising, as you called it, a brood of sons. That was a great word. <laughs> this, this group of sons who are seen as, as obviously illustrious and, and the, the perfect men as they should should be seen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's always fascinating if she had stepped out of that box too far, she would be perceived completely differently by history because her, her yeah. great-grandmother did step out of that box and is uh, Isabella France is, is regularly derided for her willingness to yeah, step up and, and protect what she saw as her rights. And yeah. so Philippa found a way to do it, to, to get the best out of the situation without stepping on any toes. And it sounds like she was quite influential in her own, in her own right. So I think that's, that's yeah. quite interesting. Most definitely. And for instance, if you go today to Lisbon, there's a modern monument, not an old one, but a modern monument made to the discoveries. It overlooks the Tagos River and it's a monument to the discoveries kind of thing. And it's full with all the characters that were prevalent in the Portuguese history. And Filipa is the only woman being represented there. And she is represented there because she was this perfect mother to these golden children who will do the Age of Discoveries. Yeah. And this, just, just to give some context, that, that monument was built in the 40s by the fascist dictatorship in Portugal. So, of course, it had to... There is a woman there, but she had to follow a very tight script and she had to, exactly. to fit into a box. And, and what's interesting is to get a little bit uh, out of that and see things like what Inej mentioned about the House of the Queen or the influence that she had in literature and her children, which goes beyond um, just that role that we usually put her in. But it's still major mm -hmm. that she's on that monument and that she's really celebrated yeah. in Portuguese history anyway. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. It's amazing that she really stood out as a mother. And I'm sure th her children were her life. But yeah, even to a life as full as having eight children. Oh my God. Let's look it. into. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's there still is. more to it. Yeah. <laughs> as, as a stay-at-home yeah, mom of yeah. three, there is there's a lot more to life. Than <laughs> there is more to there it, is. right? Yeah. We just wanted to take the time to have a look into who else was Philippa of Lancaster. Yeah, and thank you, Veronica, for joining us today. It was great having you here and being yeah. on your podcast as well. So Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> now go listen to the first part if you haven't. Yeah. Yes, please. You really should. I think both episodes give you a view of the relationship and influence of Portugal and England at the time and the United Kingdom today. So go, go check the previous episode and find out how we got to this one. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye, <laughs> guys. Bye. See you next time. And this is where I'll stop for now. Join us on the next episode. Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts, and discover more about the episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Your comments really are crucial so that more people can find us. Bye. Bye.